This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others also conversed with him, and some said, sorry, others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God in the hope that, that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also, also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Earlier in Acts 9, Jesus miraculously and authoritatively appears to this rebellious, even homicidal man, Paul, and he forgives him, and he rescues him from his life of anger and hatred and murder, and he immediately assigns to this man what will become a life-consuming task, which is to share with as many people as possible the good news that This man, Jesus, is God, and he can alone rescue people from certain death through the forgiveness of their rebellion. 
And in fact, the core of Jesus' assignment to Paul here is something he asks really of all of us who claim to know him and trust him. We're called to love God by loving our neighbor, as Pastor Rich pointed out to us last week, and to love our neighbor so much that we are willing to go out of our way to tell them about how to be reconciled to God and have eternal life with him. To love people enough to take that step to share with them how this is possible. The Bible says that followers of Jesus Christ are ambassadors. Taking the message of the king to foreign lands, to unknown break rooms. And friends, I have have this growing sense upon me this year that, that God wants each member of Sunrise Community Church to focus on his or her calling to share as, as, as an ambassador, to be prepared to open our mouths and speak. And this morning I want to point out three simple strategies just from this passage that Paul employs when sharing the message and, and that will set our stage for the coming month for what we're going to talk about. And along the way this morning, we'll take note of of a few ways that we tend to short-circuit evangelism and our efforts to share this message. So first of all, let's look at the first strategy Paul employs here in sharing this good news message. Number one, Paul acknowledges that there is spiritual potential all around him. Spiritual potential in all these people around him. Where can we see this one? A couple details. First of all, what's interesting is that as Paul travels... In all places, all regions of the known world with this good news message, he follows a strategic pattern. In each city he visits, Paul heads first to the synagogue to share. And then he goes into different parts of the city and does this here in Athens as well. So first to the synagogue, then he spends the bulk of his time with pagan idolaters, people who don't know the Old Testament, know the God of the Bible. So why does he start in the synagogue with Jewish people. First of all, because God cares about his existing chosen people. So you might recognize that Jesus' ministry is almost exclusively to the Jewish people. You may even remember a couple places where Jesus makes this clear to the Syrophoenician woman. He says, hey, look, I'm supposed to first minister to the children. He cares about people he's chosen. But secondly, the Jews had knowledge of the Old Testament. Right, the, the entirety of which spoke about the need for and the coming of God's rescuer, his chosen one, his Messiah. And thus, they should be the most likely people to understand and receive the message Paul has to bring. So he goes to the synagogue first. The Jews were the ones who were most sensitive to questions about a holy God, sensitive to questions about sin, about death, about afterlife, about heaven. Yet, as we see here in Acts 17, the good news message moves beyond the most likely, doesn't it? Moves beyond the typical church-ish setting. Because Paul understands and acknowledges something. It's totally fascinating to me. He acknowledges that every person, everyone is a worshiper. Every person has faith. In verse 16, we see this passage open with Paul seeing a city full of stone statues and temples dedicated 
to Greek and Roman gods. Does this mean that Paul recognizes that these gods are real? Calling them gods? Real spiritual beings? Less than his God, certainly, but still real? Not at all. Right? Look at verse 29. Being his offspring, we ought not to think that these div- a divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, look, these are things you have made with your own hands. And I actually like how Paul, as a side note here, tells people truth without being unnecessarily offensive. Right? He says, you know, this is actually true art and imagination you've made, on the one hand, but just understand it's not God. So on the one hand, he says, look, these things are just stone. They're beautiful stone, but it's stone nonetheless. Yet in verse 22, he calls them very religious people, and in every way. In every way, you're very religious. So doesn't he contradict himself here? Asserting in one breath that their objects of affection are just stone pieces of art, but another breath, you're very religious people? You may have heard church-going folk or preachers like myself claim we live in a godless society. We live in a godless culture, a godless nation, a godless world. But they would be wrong. Paul recognizes what is still true today. Everyone is religious because everyone worships a God and everyone exercises faith. A God or an idol is the number one thing or the number one person or number one activity in your life which you give yourself over to. Your heart is captured by it. It it steals your thoughts even when you're not near it. It, it, It's the thing around which you flex your schedule and and even your priorities to fit it. You're willing to move things around for it. Especially an idol is never some inherently bad thing. That's important. It's never usually some really awful, gross, twisted, clearly evil thing. Rather, worshiping an idol involves taking a good thing, something that's good, and making it into an ultimate thing. Sex is fantastic. All right? I highly approve of it. I'm married, by the way. I should tell you that, as you who are newcomers. Highly approve of it. But when a person makes sex into an ultimate thing, you find addiction to pornography. You find STDs. And if you're married, you find often infidelity. Multiple partners. A long lineage of deceit. Usually a broken marriage. A good thing. Making it into an ultimate thing. Children. I love them. When they become an ultimate thing to a parent, you start being shaped. You start being defined by their behavior, their choices, their achievements. You know what I'm talking about, parents? And ultimately, the outcome right, of their early adult lives and beyond. So that they crumble under pressure or they distance themselves. Right? We've seen children do this. And parents, either, depending on what happens with their kids, become prideful parasites living through their achievements or utterly devastated and depressed if things go poorly. Children, a good thing. You make them into a god, it's going to be trouble. 
But even being a good person can become an idol. Being a good, even Christian person. It's a good thing to want this, but when you make being a good person, being a good Christian person into an ultimate thing, you inevitably grow sort of self-righteously condescending. Have you ever met folks like that? Or, or worse, jealous when you encounter someone better. More righteous, more meek and kind than you. Ooh. Because you've taken a good thing. You want to be a good person. You want to be a good Christian person. You made it into an ultimate thing. Likewise, each person in the world exercises faith. We don't often say this. And people in the world who don't think of themselves as having faith wouldn't say this. But everyone has faith. In order to get what we want or need, everyone exercises faith. Often it's in an idol. But it's also in simple everyday life and normal choices we make. I have an engineer friend who uh, once visited somewhere in South Africa, sorry, South America. And he wanted to get where he was visiting from one side of a canyon to another. And the way to get there was with this bridge of interlocking vines, which were dubiously hung over 100 feet over water, right, over this big river. Now, he knew that this bridge had supported hundreds of people before him, and he even watched, he witnessed people walking across this bridge. But as an engineer, he wanted to weigh every factor. He wanted to test the stress tolerance of the vines, he said, test the wood for termites. He wanted to check out other bridges in the area, see if there was a better one. Let's do a test on them. But without every piece of information and only some reasonable knowledge, he took the step of faith and walked across the bridge. Notice it's not blind faith, but taking everything into consideration, but still not having the full picture, he takes a step of faith. He doesn't know this could be the time the bridge collapses, right? And he's hanging by the vine, like one of those bad movies. Every day, people exercise reasonable faith like this, right? Well, it could be walking across bridges, putting our money into banks that we're just getting to know, but we've asked a few people if it's a good bank. Getting married, right, without all the details. Man, that is, it's a step of faith. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's worthy of laughter. Even, you know, the cereal I ate this morning, step of faith. Sure, I've heard of General Mills, but have I ever really seen their factory? No. <laughs> What's in this Lucky Charms? Purple horseshoes. Could be anything. You take a step of faith. I put the spoon in my mouth. I still eat it. Everyone's religious because everyone worships something. Everyone has faith. The Apostle Paul notes that each person in the city has spiritual potential because of this. Everyone has spiritual potential. And that's important because that means... All have questions about God and faith. Everyone has questions about God and faith, but not necessarily the questions that a person willing to come to church has. Not necessarily a person who you advise, yeah, sure, I'll come to church. Not necessarily those questions. About 25 years ago, a well-known British author and minister named John Blanchard wrote a a booklet to reach pre-Christians. I call them pre-Christians instead of non-Christians because I want to be praying for these people. I want to have faith and hope that they're going to become Christians. So I 
I like to call non-Christians pre-Christians. Try it sometimes. It can, it can help. Anyway, he wrote this booklet to read pre-Christians, and he called it Ultimate Questions. All right, here it is. This provocatively titled, mass-distributed book was subheaded by what were 25 years ago immediately relevant questions to people 25 years ago. Questions like, what is God like? Is God speaking? Who am I? Right? What went wrong? Is sin serious? Can religion help? Why is the cross important? And finally, how can I be saved? These all remain ultimate questions. But by and large, they are no longer people's first questions. They're not the first questions on people's minds. They are the first questions in the Athenian synagogue that Paul visits, and they're the first question amongst those willing to come to church or to your community group, but they are not the only questions, and thus not the only people we should be reaching out to. This began to crystallize for me about six months ago in the Owen Roberts Airport baggage claim. I was coming home from a trip, and it took a while to process the baggage. I was probably near 55 pounds. I don't know what was going on. But I struck up a conversation with a gentleman in the baggage claim. The pastor gig eventually came up. Usually that kills conversations when you tell someone you're a pastor. But in this case, it led to me asking, so what do you you think about God? He was very candid with me. He says, I don't have any interest in God, in church, or in religion. Never have. And I just paused for a moment. As I paused, I felt God's Spirit prompting me to do something. I decided to try something different. And so I asked, well, take God out of it for a moment. What is the biggest obstacle in your life right now? Thought about it. I said, honestly, it's my workplace. I feel stuck. On the one hand, I have... I have these co-workers and these friends at work who are really nice, humble people, but they tend to get trampled on and are often really down and hard on themselves. And I don't want that. But on the other hand, my bosses, they're pretty successful. I mean, they exude confidence. But honestly, they're jerks. Only he didn't use the word jerks. <laughs> All right. So he said, and I don't want that either. Right? I don't want that. And so I guess I'm wondering, how can I get both? So I just rephrased the question back to him. I said, so basically you're asking, let me get this straight, how can you be both humble and confident at the same time? It's like, yeah. Now, I want to be honest, friends, I was not prepared with a good response. Right? I know I'm the, the, the pastor guy, whatever, so I have all the answers. I was not very prepared. I bumbled, stumbled over my words. I'm honestly not a great ambassador. I'm not great at witnessing. My wife is much more gifted at it. Pastor Rich is very good at that as well. I give him credit. I mean, he, he's very good at that. I, I am not great at that. I, I was not prepared, so I got prepared. But I, I did something else. I made a point over the following months to ask the same question when I saw an opening with someone. Again, that question was, take God out of it for a moment what's the biggest obstacle in your life right now? And I found 
some just fascinating, enlightening, illuminating answers. Four, out of, four or five general themes or questions started to emerge. One was the one I just mentioned. All right. Another one was, why is life so hard for me? And, and even harder for others. All right, it's a question of suffering. Another question was, issue was, man, someone should have to pay for all this stuff that goes on. Right? Who's it going to be? Who's going to pay for this? It's a question of justice. Someone's got to pay. Who's it going to be? And the fourth one was, um, how can I get my needs met while I meet needs in others? Admittedly, it was physical needs this person was talking about. The question of red-hot romance. All right, the, now look, at first these questions gnawed at me a little bit because the Christian God, or even the idea of God, wasn't even an afterthought in these people's minds or their hearts. When they had these obstacles, it used to be that people would, you know, at least show some anger, right? Some underlying anger or about God, or they question his character, or even his existence. These people, I mean, I've just found consistently now, people offer up nothing about God. He's an afterthought. Until it dawned on me that the gospel message, the good news message, provides an answer to each of these questions. And so over the next four weeks, I'm very excited about this, we're going to be going through this series called Answers Without Compromise, sharing the gospel in, in, in ways, creative ways, sharing the gospel in ways that answer people's deepest questions without compromising its message. How can we creatively do that? I think we can with this great gospel that God has given us, this great message of good news. But we need to prepare, because like Paul, we are called to go. And here's strategy number two. Strategy one was by far the longest I'm going to spend time on. Here's strategy number two. Paul goes to them. Did you notice that here in this passage? Paul goes to where normal people work, where they shop, where they socialize. And he goes there, Scripture says, every day in verse 17, right? Every day with this good news message. Not every day in the church, not every day in the synagogue. He goes to the agora, or the marketplace, that's translated here in English. That was the place for locals to sell you know, local produce, or, or those from afar to sell their wares. It was open every day, every weekday, from sunup to sundown. That's where you went to work. That's where you went to get work. That's where you went to have fun during the daytime and meet other people. When you walked into a new city, that's the first place you stepped into. God has you, friends, in the marketplace. Some of you work. Some of you shop. Some of you socialize. Some of you even do all three. Some of you only shop and socialize. <laughs> you know who you are. And there, friends, there is the starting place from where pre-Christians might start to seek and feel for God as you share with them His good news. That's the place. Read with me in verses 26 and 27. 
Paul says, God made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope they might feel their way toward him and find him. God has put you and them into the same time and space for a reason. He's determined it. There's a reason why that is. I think we're too quick sometimes to try to wedge people, friends, coworkers, neighbors into a sanctuary. And I'm the pastor. I want people here. Don't get me wrong. But we're too quick to wedge them in there. When Paul says that where they live and where they move, that God is not far from each one of us, verse 27. He's not far there. And the primary pattern we see here in the book of Acts and the start of the church and the most effective form of evangelism throughout history is when believers gather inward to have their faith strengthened, to be equipped to share their faith, and then go outward to share it. Inward to worship, to gather, to strengthen, to be equipped, outward to share it. So similarly, my hope during this series, my greatest hope, which might surprise you, is to equip you with clear and memorable ways. I'm really going to be challenged to equip you with clear and memorable ways to answer those first questions of your friends, neighbors, and coworkers. I want to help you do that in clear and memorable ways because so often we short-circuit evangelism by demanding that people come to us. You know what I mean? Come here. We want to make everything, make it easy for us. Come to us. Let the guy who's the expert at sharing things do his thing. But so often we short-circuit what God intends. Being in the marketplace. Sharing where God has determined us to be. Now I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth here. All right, be prepared. I want you to bring friends, neighbors, and coworkers to this series because we're going to be answering these questions. I mean, I'm going to straight up just share it in hopefully a simple, understandable way. I'm excited about it. My friend Craig Morgan, I'm embarrassed him here, he's so excited about it. He's taking out a big ad in the Cayman Compass with this series and all the things we're going to talk about in it. His own initiative there. But I want you to understand that this proves most effective when you go out to the marketplace, to the shared time and space allotted with the message. Okay. Paul goes out. Here's the third thing Paul does, his third strategy. Paul answers without compromising the message. He answers people's deepest questions without compromising the message. Look, starting in verse 29. Look, being God's offspring, he says to these people, remember, these people don't know really anything about the Hebrew Jewish God. You know, your poets have said, so he relates to their culture, notice that. Your poets have even said these things. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. That man was Jesus Christ. Paul speaks sensibly in ways they can understand but doesn't leave out the hard stuff. Did you notice that? Paul talks about, hey, it's time to put ignorance behind you. All right? There's no excuse. You've been ignorant. Tells them that a lifestyle change 
it's going to be necessary. The way you've lived in the past, it's basically a way of describing repentance. You're going to have to turn from that way, turn to God's way of living. It's hard to hear, right? Ooh, but Paul, that might offend some people. He mentions here that God still judges people. He still hates sin. He can't be around it. He's perfect. He's holy. And then, you know, he is still the standard. His own character, his own righteousness, there's still a very high standard, and God is that standard. Whoa, that's hard to hear. I can't live up to God. He doesn't leave out the hard stuff. He doesn't compromise the message. Look at the results in verses 32 through 34. Some people mock. Some people feign curiosity. Oh, I want to hear some more. Maybe we'll come back next week. Some people decide to trust their lives to Jesus Christ, and their lives are forever changed. But because we fear that mocking part, because we fear that ridicule, the hurtful words, the sneers we might get if we say something about Jesus and our faith, we often short-circuit evangelism by offering Jesus as ibuprofen. Or Advil, if you prefer. Tylenol? I don't know. Aleve? Whatever you want to call it. We offer Jesus oftentimes as ibuprofen, which is often called felt needs evangelism. What do I mean by that? We want to get it out in a way that's most palatable for people. So if someone is poor, Jesus will solve your problem and give you plenty of food. He's the quick fix. You got a hard marriage? Jesus is the answer for that. He will solve all your problems in marriage. He'll make it all better. You have an unfulfilling job, Jesus can solve that. If you're sick, Jesus will heal you. If you lack peace in your life, Jesus will calm every circumstance around you. But we know that's not true. Jesus will do all those things. He will culminate all those things at the resurrection. But Jesus is not a quick fix. People did the same thing, by the way, when Jesus roamed the earth. The biggest felt need to which Jesus was the ibuprofen in his time was total independence from a semi-oppressive government. Not a totally oppressive government, semi-oppressive. The Jewish nation wanted independent, self-sustaining, successful government. And Jesus, the supposed Messiah, he was expected, even asked, to be the quick-fix solution to take away all their immediate problems, to bring them this government. Become a successful nation. But Jesus wanted not less, but more for them. He wanted to save them in ways that would go beyond their puny 70, then 50 years of existence. He wanted not less, but more for them, and he still does. But I've got to be honest. We have to be honest about what that is and the response that's involved. It's going to require... Total allegiance to Jesus, recognizing he's God of your life. Thankfully, the fact that he's righteous, that he's a holy God who judges, who hates sin, who asks us to live much differently than we used to, is an integral part of the good news answers to the questions people are asking. I think we're going to see that over the coming weeks. But pre-Christians are not asking questions that they used to. They're not asking questions that they used to. But as worshipers with faith, they are asking questions 
for which the uncompromising gospel still provides an answer. A number of years ago, I read a newspaper article. It was entitled, When the Pressure's On, They're at Their Best. And this article featured interviews with a number of professionals whose jobs forced them to deal with major knee-buckling kind of pressure, right? The kind that really makes your palms sweaty. And you... As I read this article, I thought of the high stakes, usually avoided pressure associated with the job Jesus has given us to be his ambassadors, to step across the line and share his message of good news with others. In this article, those interviewed were uh, a major league baseball pitcher, relief pitcher, person who comes in at the end of a game, is expected to save the game for his team, a fireman, and an emergency room doctor. And they're all interviewed, and there were two common threads, what they all said. One, they all agreed that the prevalent pressure facing them in their job was the fear of failure. Fear of failure. And they step across that line to help people failing. But equally, they said the common antidote was thorough and repeated preparation. Getting prepared. Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses have caught on. They have prepared themselves for the high stakes of sharing what they believe is the key to eternal life. Why should we be any different? Let's get prepared, friends, so that we can go to them with a life-saving answer. Let's pray. Father, some of us have experienced in here that, that moment of sharing their faith with someone else and being nervous about it, sometimes, often, more often than not being rejected, being shunned, being maybe even laughed at, ignored, treated a little bit differently. It's even harder, Lord, it feels like nowadays when people don't even necessarily bring up God anymore, when they think about their problems and they recognize that things aren't working right in their life, they don't think of God as the answer. That's not the first question on their minds. What's so important to remember, Lord, is that just like the Athenians back in Paul's day, people still worship today. They still have idols and gods and they still exercise faith every day of their life. So they're still asking the same questions. Lord, I'm asking, we're asking for your help. 